Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Shelly Kurtz. Shelly is the co-founder and CMO of X for Impact and Giving Tech Labs. Their vision is to inspire entrepreneurs worldwide to drive positive impact and change through artificial intelligence, data sciences, and sustainable models to address systemic social issues. Shelly has over 20 years of award-winning experience in leading global digital media campaigns for tech startups and Fortune 500 companies, including NBC Universal, Comcast, Make TV, and Giving Compass. As a strong believer in the power of good intentions, Shelly is a passionate cheerleader for making personal connections, creating strategy, and having a vision for the greater good. Welcome, Shelly. Thank you. I need to add in there, and a mom. And a mom. And, and an ass kicker, and all, and, and, and. If it has to happen, you know, every yeah. once in a while, you gotta get the, get the shoes out with the right, uh, you know, steel in the toe, get things done. Yeah, hopefully not, not too much. Yeah. And I think was, everyone's already it, been kicked this year, right? <laughs> COVID it was, it was, it, it was Deanna who introduced us, right? Yes. I know. She's I love her. Ass kicker. She's a total ass kicker. And what I love is when people that you don't know, especially, I mean, I know Seattle's a city, but sometimes it can feel like a town. And when I meet someone like you, especially in, in a time like COVID where we're meeting over video and I just felt like such a love fest with you. I'm like, I, this is like a woman I want in my corner. I want to know. And I'm so psyched that we're making this happen to have you on the podcast. Oh, good. It's I a know. gift. It's a gift to everybody to get to know you better. So, Oh, thank you. Well, yeah. most people that know me know that this is really challenging because in my real life, I'm such a hugger. I would be the ultimate super spreader if I was allowed out in the in the general population because I'm just a toucher, a feeler. People come I'm the to same way. I'm the and same so way. So this has been hard to contain myself in just these little squares or rectangles yeah. we're in. But there is a human connection, right? Where you can sort of have that Yes. Moment. I think we're missing it. And I think the world is just going to be like a big hug fest when this is all over. <laughs> I think it's going to be beautiful, actually. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Let's get, to, let's get to rapid fire. Um, what material item would you save in a fire? I would save my phone because I have about 20,000 pictures and videos of my children's childhood that I have never actually digitized. So I would take that and uh, hope that everything else was insured. Yeah, exactly. What's the craziest job that you've ever had? Oh, the craziest job. Uh, I was a bagel girl and I was not a good bagel girl. I was uh, in the midst of making espresso coffees and didn't know what I was doing. And so I apologize to anyone who <laughs> went to the bagel factory in 1994. It was, it was good for everyone in the dorm and college. I would bring home bagels, but not so good for those that had to drink my beverages. So I <laughs> and is there a fashion trend that you would hope will come back? Well, I understand you have one of these, so apparently um, it's maybe already coming back in your household, but I really liked 
the puffy vest look from college. It was very practical, not very good at showing off any sort of, you know, sexy figure, but very practical for the Northwest. Mine was bright orange. So I don't know where that bright orange vest is, but it's also great for, you know, any sort of walking at dusk. You can see me from a while. Probably the the puffy vest. Perfect. And um, tell me about your special skills. Like what are those special skills that have helped you as a leader or as an entrepreneur? I think just the, the ability to read the room, the ability to connect with someone, the ability to listen and ask questions. My girlfriends call me Barbara Walters. So probably just asking and learning more about the other person than talking is something that has helped me along the way. Yeah. Well, I can feel it because you have a genuine interest. And I think that that shines through for sure. Um, Who would you most like to meet? I would probably like to meet Satya Nadella because I just love the way that he leads with his heart, with empathy. And I had a chance to do a phone call with him over Teams several weeks ago. And he just sort of radiated through his rectangle and I would love to have that energy (laughs) in person and be able to ask him a whole lot of other questions. Yeah. I've only heard the most incredible things about him. Um, And yeah, I know that. And you read his book too, right? I haven't read it yet, but yeah. You should. Um, That needs to be on your list for the holidays. I I know. You got to put it on the list. Hit refresh. Um, How do you go about making decisions? Are you kind of a gut person or data? I'm gut, but then I make sure that I have data to back it up. So uh, it's usually something that I make a pretty quick assessment on based on logic, but I always want to make sure that I have that data. So I don't know, I guess I'm a hybrid. At work, it's data, but in my personal life, it's it's gut. Make a quick decision. Yeah. So, so tell me about you. Like we're meeting as adults, but tell me about you as a child. Like where are you from and what was your childhood like? Mm. Well, if you met me at 10, you would probably feel pretty similar to meeting me at, you know, I won't say it, Uh, but I grew up in Vancouver. Younger than me. That's all that matters. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I grew up in what we call America's Vancouver, because if I say I grew up in Vancouver, everyone says, oh, I love Vancouver. It's so beautiful. And I say, no, not that one. The other one. America's Vancouver. Near near Portland, Oregon. And uh, I had a a great childhood. My parents... um, have been married for almost 50 years. I have a younger brother and I was always the person that was internally driven. And that sounds really um, sort of self, um, you know, gratifying, but it was just something that I had in me. My parents didn't push me, but I was the person that was in, you know, five activities at once. And I think just curious too. I remember Mm -hmm. going to like computer camp when I was in fourth grade, which is not exactly a sexy, cool thing to do. But at the time, this was like this new machine and I just wanted to learn about it. And growing up then in high school, I was the person that was the captain of the cheerleading team and the ASB, you know, vice president of activities, speaking in front of the, you know, the school body, getting everyone excited and um, probably, you know, deservedly called like teacher's pet because I really did want to be in the front row of um, classes because I just love learning. And um, I think that that's something that stayed with me through my life, but I've always been talkative. I've always been someone who connects easily with people, but um, grew up in a fairly normal household, just sort of, you know, 
middle class, probably lower middle class, you know, or my earlier years. Mm. My dad is an immigrant from Cuba. So he came to this country at 10 with nothing and didn't know the language, didn't have anyone here, grew up through the foster care system and met my mom. It's a really fun story um, that they were in Portland, Oregon. And my dad was in his cool car with his buddy. He had been working at Goodyear Tire, so he had earned up some cash. And my mom and her friend were walking down the street, and my dad picked them up. You know, they sort of all went on this double date. And the next weekend, he had tickets to the Elvis Presley concert and took my mom. And the rest is history. They got married four months later, 18 and 19. So this really. Wow. Um, and very different upbringings. Where's your mom from? Yeah, she's from Oregon, small town, Hermiston, Oregon. But I grew up with this dichotomy of I had this Cuban family and uh, that side of um, my dad's life experience. It was so different. Uh, and back in the 70s and early 80s, uh, it was still you know, not a, a really diverse cultural time in America. And I remember my Cuban family coming to live with us after the 1980 Muriel boat lifts. And my dad helped bring them from Cuba. They didn't speak any English. And I saw my uncle who had uh, his master's degree and was a CPA in Cuba get relegated to working at McDonald's and sweeping the floors. Literally, it was that American story of seeing that you really had to start at the bottom and work your way up. And I'm sure that it, shaped you significantly. Yeah, yeah, it did. And, and you know, we took them in and, um, and then it was too cold in the great Northwest uh, for that side of the family. So they eventually relocated to Florida. I was going to say Florida. Yeah, of course, right? A warm yeah. climate. So I think that and, was a significant moment in my life. And then um, later went on um, even to adopt um, a brother that was someone that um, we knew in our family circle. My dad coached with his dad and uh, coached baseball and his dad got sick with cancer and asked my parents if we would take him in. And so that at age 10 really shifted then the sort of trajectory of our life. And I think again, had this powerful sort of message embedded in it that is you take care of people and that there's something that we can do to help others, even if we don't have you know, sort of everything figured out, whatever we do have, we're going to share it with others. Wow, that's beautiful. And so within your family dynamic, are you the like extreme extrovert or is it like a family of like extroverts? I always tell people that think that I'm a lot, you haven't met my family, that I'm the one that would probably be considered the most, you know, sort of neutral. Um, It's a family of personalities, that's for sure. Yeah, my brother owns his own company as well. My father um, was for 42 years in the title business, ended up owning his own title company, starting from nothing. Um, my mom's also really exuberant. And um, yeah, we're just a loud family. So uh, in normal times, you know, if everyone's gathering, you can barely get a word in edgewise. So yeah, we have a family of dynamic opinions we'll say yeah it's funny because when you bring people in like you know obviously maybe your husband if he came from you know a totally different type of family and then you bring people in and try to merge people yes. in your family. my family is very it doesn't even cross my mind that it's you know I have to learn to not interrupt and not add opinions and and it's not in a like oh we're so opinionated and we're stubborn but there's just it's a democracy it's not like yeah. this kind of 
super traditional, like the parents are here, the kids are here. We're, we're all engaged constantly. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think it's point, fun. my husband is the complete opposite. He's very calm and steady and it, yeah. his presence is really nice and balance. balance. Yeah. Yeah. And so what did you want to be when you were little? It sounds like you were kind of had your hands and everything. Was that because of your kind of thirst for knowledge or because you were driven toward achievement? When I was younger, I really was, um, again, a kid of the 80s. And so I was enamored by the proliferation of uh, content. So watching TV all the time, my parents laughed that I would always have the TV on in the background when I was doing my homework. And um, sometimes maybe talking on the phone at the same time, always multitasking. So when I graduated college and I ended up working at a TV station, my parents just thought that was the most ironic thing ever because they kept saying, turn off the TV. How can you concentrate? And then they saw me working at a TV station where I had a TV in my office. So um, at the early stage, I would have probably framed it as I wanted to be in advertising. That was really exciting to me. I wanted yeah. to make you like Mad Men, like Mad Men, exactly. Write copy, come up with clever, you know, um, jingles or you know, um, taglines yeah. and slogans. Uh, so that was probably the, my articulation. I would have said somewhere in there. And then as I got a little bit older, kind of developed into what was eventually a major in public relations. So I would have mm-hmm. thought I wanted to go out and be at an agency. Yeah. Um, doing, you and know, was this all your own influence or were there people that you kind of looked up to along the way that were like, oh, if I could be that when I get older? No, I think the only thing I knew for sure was that I was definitely going to go to college. My parents yeah. didn't graduate college. And so I knew that I, that was really important to me. And so uh, I think then it was just, I was always given the freedom to have my own interests and not push in a particular direction of go be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And so then I just- Because you're not you're like a Jewish family. You're, you're talking about the, the typical <laughs> yeah. Jewish family. A doctor, a lawyer. Yeah. Right, exactly. So because I didn't have that, I had the, the freedom to think, well, what do I love? What's interesting to me? And so yeah. that was for me um, something that I was just excited about. It just felt like a fun- um, opportunity. And, uh, and so then in college, I was sort of pushed, you talked earlier when we were chatting before the podcast about whether or not there was sort of a key mentor, someone that helps you on that career. And I had a great college professor that she was actually the head of the communication department at my university. And she's the one that told me, I know you think you want to go work at an agency, but I really want you to get an internship at the TV station. And I want you to try to do something different outside of what you think you, um, you might end up wanting to do. And the rest was history. And then oh, I, that's I, awesome. I was like, and how did you, how did you choose Pacific Lutheran? Mm. Well, that's a funny story. Um, so my dad and, and my mom too were very influential and, and, um, we have a really close family. And when I was applying for colleges, I applied to four. Back then, that's what you did. I don't know. Today's kids are applying to like 50 colleges. Oh, really? Yes. I'm not there yet. So God, that sounds awful. Yes. So back then, you know, we had to do it pencil and longhand. So four was enough. So I had applied to University of San Diego and Santa Clara in California, and then a state school that was public and a state school that was private. So I actually applied to UPS and Western. And I got into all four, and I was so excited about going to University of San Diego. That was yeah, it was like sunshine. Yes, yeah, sunshine. When you grew up in the Northwest, 
and you felt like you grew up in a small town, although Vancouver's not that small, but it's 100,000 people. I wanted to go live this big, exciting yeah. life. But my dad bribed me to stay in state. And yeah, he's like, you brother, can save me a couple dollars. Yeah. Yes. And my brother was only 14 months behind me. And so I think yeah. that they were nervous on two fronts. One, that their daughter would leave and never come back, and which yeah. is probably well, true. Well, that was smart. Because look at, yeah. yeah. California, see ya. Uh, and the other was, you know, financial. So I started out going to um, a public school, to, to Western, and then my brother went to, to Pacific Lutheran University, went to PLU to play baseball. And so by the time he came around, I kind of went, hey, wait a minute, the rules changed. But yeah. actually, by that time, I started getting more into my major communication and Spanish. Yeah. And it's harder. So how did you break into your career after that? So you graduate and then was yeah, there so a, I graduated not like, I, you because know. of PLU, I would say that, you know, I was really pushed and I um, got an internship and, and then uh, after the internship, I went up to the general manager's office and, you know, little Shelly in her suit that was probably like two sizes too big, you know, made my business case that I needed to, um, to take this job that they had had open. It was a public affairs director role, which was way bigger for my britches than the 22 year old, you know, fresh college graduate. Uh, But they decided that they would give me an opportunity to, to help out, to play that role in a, in a junior position. So the official title was, I think, uh, public affairs associate or assistant. And I went into the HR department. I said, <laughs> I've been thinking, I think it would really, you know, be more beneficial if it was assistant public affairs director, because there is no public affairs director. I think this would help open more doors. So somehow I negotiated um, this awesome. silly, you know, semantic, and then eventually became the public affairs director. And uh, from there, Um, Yeah, continued my journey into into broadcasting and digital cable and kind of on that side. Yeah. And so if if, like kids are listening, because I I always tell guests that like, I'm not quite sure exactly who's listening. And sometimes it might be somebody who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur. Maybe it's someone who, you know, personally, maybe it's a kid. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I ask the questions from the angle of like, you know, my kids listening and maybe getting some nuggets. Um, what is public affairs? Like, because I've been recruiting for 26 years and there's candidates that would come in to interview with me that are recent college grads. And if I'd say something like, you know, what are you looking for exactly? This doesn't happen as much anymore, but years ago it would be like, I don't know, like PR or like HR. I'm like, wait, those are totally different. Where they'd say something like HR and I'd be like, well, what do you mean? They'd be like, well, because I want to like, you know, help people and like fire people. I'm like, that is nothing. <laughs> You're forgetting. They, they, they just don't know. And so if somebody's yeah. listening and they're like, ooh, what is that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good question. So public affairs, I don't know, this is not the Wikipedia definition, but yeah, but I'm curious. Okay. Has to do with government relations. And in the case of um, a TV station, you had to maintain FCC regulations, the Federal Communication Commission. And there was a certain level of public duty that um, was needed in order to, and it still is, in order for television stations to maintain their their license. And so public affairs incorporated the public service announcements that um, TV stations um, uh, use their airtime to donate to nonprofit organizations and charitable causes. 
and also the regulations and maintaining that critical public trust, which had to do with some very specific frameworks. So that's a very narrow um, case with what I did, but public affairs for companies usually has to do with um, an array of government affairs and sort mm -hmm. of um, looking at different legislative issues or locally how to coordinate among different stakeholders in the interest of, of the public. And usually there's some sort of a criteria that has to do with, um, with licensing or certification, ah, um, some sort of maintaining a, a business license and, um, and duty and service. So um, that would be my definition. Of, That's helpful. Of That's super helpful. Okay, good. And so what's what, and also communications is such a big word. And so is yeah. PR and marketing and, yeah. you know, when, when, um, when talking to, to people and trying to learn about their careers, it's super helpful to hear about what exactly you're doing because just a title doesn't necessarily tell yeah. people. Yeah, well, um, I love it. So, I mean, in the way that we were working early on, I got to produce a public affairs show, which meant that every week we would look at different issues around the sound and talk about them. And this was part of our public discourse. And we got to do things like a special, uh, do you remember Scared Straight? Do you remember yeah, that show where they would take yeah. kids into pr federal prisons and totally. the hell out of them? So we got to do a lot of special program where we would bring in uh, kids from the inner city and talk about these issues in real time. And so I got a lot to do a lot of those sort of um, deeper issue oriented um, programming pieces. And then we would do fundraisers like coats for kids and, and bring in that sort of community. That's all super. I cool. think that was, yeah, sort of the beginning of my social impact in my career trajectory, but I didn't think I was going to be an entrepreneur. Some people to your point sort of are now, especially because they're watching yeah. Shark Tank and they say, yeah. I want to be oh, an of entrepreneur. Course. Yeah. But you've also worked for some really big, impressive companies. Which one would you kind of call your kind of anchor experience of like, this was me kind of taking my career to the next level or, or identifying as like a future, you know, leader? Mm. I mean, I think probably from that early, that early experience of just being that young girl and, and going in um, to this big world of broadcast television. And we had a lot of sister stations around the country and I was the youngest person by far in my role. So I weaseled mm -hmm. my way in. And uh, I remember when I'd asked for a promotion at some point to my general manager and I took him out to lunch and uh, wanted to get him away from the office and just have a conversation. And he asked me to write down what I wanted on a napkin. This was like a scene from a movie. So I remember writing it down that I wanted this title from assistant public affairs director to the public affairs director role. And I wanted an increase in comp and I, who knows what my list of demands was. And he said, no, no way. It's mid-year. We don't do those things, you know, off cycle. I'm sure you've heard all of these things a million times. I got all the reasons why not. And I said, well, okay, I understand that, but I'd like you to think about it and see if you can talk to the other regions and see if there's an opportunity. And about three weeks later, he came down to my desk one day and he slid the napkin over and it said, yes, yes, and yes. Oh so, my gosh, he saved the napkin. He saved the napkin. And I think just showing that grit and advocating for myself, particularly as a woman, a very young woman, I think was probably defining, you know, I was only there for 
three years, but I think defining in, in knowing that I could believe in myself, I could ask That's for what amazing. I wanted. And even if I got a no, it was okay. I was really happy that I at least could have, you know, had that opportunity. And I'm to. sure he respected you, you know, yeah. a lot for that. And so um, you've worked for some big companies, you've worked in startups. Mm -hmm. Do you find, like, how would you define kind of the difference and where you feel um, most alive? Mm, the difference is dramatic. It's stark. I uh, spent almost 16 years working for NBC Universal after I left the local TV station. And it was at that point, maybe 100,000 employees around the world. And um, we were in a situation like most big companies where you had a very defined you know, amount of sort of rope. And then there were, you know, the legal departments and business affairs, and there was a lot of bureaucracy naturally in having an, a due diligence process. And so I was really used to a framework of everyone being a, a specialist. And when I left and ultimately then uh, came to the startup world, I was employee number one for an early stage VC funded startup in Seattle that had developed technology in Germany and they were looking to scale and break into the US market. So I was hired and I really felt like I had landed from Mars. It was a completely different experience. The, the, the pace, the tools, all of the freedom in some ways, um, but also the lack of guardrails, the lack of a playbook, like where do you look for this answer? Totally. How has it been done? It's never been done. So you're, you're building the plane as you're flying it. And uh, I really had to seek out a mentor during that time to try to help me navigate this, even though I had built a very successful career, done a lot of big deals and done a lot of exciting things and, and traveled and um, really felt like I had a strong foundation in business development and sales and marketing and all of the sort of core elements of doing the work, the actual environment was so starkly different mm. that I just needed to sort of get my bearings and understand how much of it was because I'd come from this really, you know, sort of entrenched corporate culture and infrastructure, how much of it was because I was a young woman working at a, maybe I wasn't so young, but a, a woman working in sort of a very male dominated industry and company, or was this just sort of the way it was? And that uh, it was really helpful, you know, to, to have someone. And that person ended up being Louis Salazar, who now is the co-founder of my company and my business partner. And it was really refreshing to have someone say, yes, you know, this is the way it is or no, you know, yeah. what types of advice? Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, we work with a ton of startups and then larger enterprise clients also. And when we're recruiting for startups, oftentimes we are trying to vet for that, like, startup mentality, startup stomach. And like, there's no, there's no just like personality assessment that you can give or something, but you are trying to measure like, how do you deal in ambiguity and how do you deal without the guardrails and, yes. um, and just the the unknowns and the pivoting and your idea was so good and then we just trashed it and all yeah. of it. And yeah. so what kind of advice did, did he give you? And obviously it was good advice because you ultimately partnered and stayed in a startup. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that he, he really gave me the confidence to know that my intuition and, and my strategy was sound. And I needed to hear that because you do sort of feel like, well, maybe I don't know 
anything anymore. You kind of get this imposter syndrome when you're doing something uh, for the first time and you don't have that constant reassurance mm-hmm. around you from, you know, sort of the, um, the, the market or co- colleagues or, you know, you're not getting that feedback mechanism. And so I think just having the ability to, to know that meant a lot. Uh, yeah. so you don't sort of doubt yourself, but I think also just the rapid change of pace and just knowing that this is the way it is. And he said something that was really powerful to me. And he said, six months in a startup culture is the equivalent of like six years on the outside. And that really gave me a sense of perspective that um, it's moving fast. You are on a train and that your brain is sort of, you know, firing on all cylinders and, um, and you have to be iterative in a way that, you know, established companies just don't have to. And so the exhaustion is real. And just some of the statistics about, you know, sort of the 18 month cycle for startups started yeah. making sense to me that that was the equivalent maybe of my 15 years of yeah. my previous job. So you started the company 2017. So yeah. three years in, um, tell me about what the company does. And then I've got like a hundred questions. <laughs> okay. Sure. So we founded Giving Tech Labs in downtown Seattle in uh, 2017. And our vision was really to help bridge the gap between the tech sector and the nonprofit sector. We saw an opportunity for there to be a space where you could take all of the best practices of what does work to gain scale and business models that work to monetize and sustain an organization and bring that to a sector that had really been underserved. And at the same time, to be a voice for the nonprofit sector where there were real opportunities to innovate and create technology solutions. And yet these silos sort of had existed without a great bridge to connect them. And so we're essentially a social impact innovation lab. And we started with our very first project building a website portal called Giving Compass that was bringing together all of the best resources for philanthropy into one single place. And that was created because Jeff and Trisha Rakes, who you may know are well-known philanthropists here in Seattle, but even if you don't know the Rakes Foundation, Jeff was previously the CEO of the Gates Foundation and before that uh, spent his career at Microsoft. And they really struggled as people with means who wanted to make an impact in certain issue areas in terms of looking at how to cut through the clutter and find the really impactful opportunities to give and learn and understand how to find a cohort of others who are interested in that same issue area and learn together. So because they felt like with all of their resources, they were having a hard time understanding where to start, that this was something that other people could identify with. And so there was an opportunity to create a tech play by bringing together these resources. And so that's where Luis and I started. And they had been building the technology. And uh, so one of the things that I really saw from my vantage point was that it had a head and it was missing the heart. And so Luis and I have a great, I think, um, ability to bring both pieces together that when you're building technology to solve a problem, particularly in social impact space, you want to make sure that it's still human and that it is really feeling organic for users that may not necessarily 
be thinking about technology. And so the best mm -hmm. technology, I think, doesn't feel like technology. It just feels like all the things that you want in a place that is easy to find, that sort of Steve Jobs, Apple idea that you yeah. know, to simplify is actually uh, the hardest thing to do. And so through that process, we started meeting with nonprofit organizations and having listening sessions around the country and really starting to learn about all of the different needs that nonprofits had and the opportunities for technology to really help support a scaled infrastructure approach so that there could be data-driven insights and you could see benchmarking. And we just saw that in any other industry, if you were starting, a, a, you know, let's say a restaurant or you were starting your own shoe store or anything else, you would not build your own a point of sale software solution, right? You would just use something for a low cost monthly subscription. You would look at all of these best off the shelf tools. And yet what we saw in the nonprofit space is there were so many individual organizations struggling with small budgets to try to build something that was so custom for them. And it was using outsized amounts of budget to build things that by definition should scale and support multiple organizations. And so that's what we really try to do is looking at systemic solutions to real problems. And um, through that, I've built seven individual incubations companies from the ground up that have addressed individual social issues. And that brought us to our sort of aha moment where we are today with expert impact that we needed to be able to go much faster and sort of eat our own dog food and do a digital transformation of our process instead of individually meeting with nonprofits and hearing about their needs and building technology. We needed to help create thousands of giving tech labs and a whole lot more social impact innovation by creating a central hub where the, the sectors could really meet and learn about the problems and the solutions and the funding. And so how this, this is incredible. So how have you funded it? Mm. So we have been bootstrapped from the beginning uh, with Giving Tech Labs. We didn't take any venture capital funding. And then throughout the process of building our individual social enterprises, they've each taken a little bit of a different path. So some of them are funded by private foundations that have uh, sort of taken that and hosted those um, final sort of deliverables and continued supporting that. So Giving Compass is own entity that is um, sponsored by the Rakes Foundation. And we have done uh, others where there's actually a traditional finance raise. So mm. Edenix is a nonprofit tool that helps by protecting children who have been sexually abused or assaulted. And we created a video platform so that their testimonials are safe and secure. And that's a very specific cloud technology tool that needed its own capital and had a much broader market opportunity to compete in the digital evidence space. And so it went through a series A last year and um, I'm still on the board and we're still investors, but brought on a traditional round of financing and was actually the largest series A at the time in the state of Nebraska. So it exited to Nebraska where you would not normally think a tech company would go, but we're finding that this mission driven tech culture has a lot of opportunity to look at smaller markets where they are experiencing brain drain. The kids go to college and they leave to go to the coast, to Seattle and San Francisco and Boston and New York. And if there's an opportunity 
to harness innovation and keep your brightest minds right there in a town that um, wouldn't have otherwise had those tech jobs. It's a really exciting kind of economic development story as well. And so oh, um, yeah. I was really excited about that. So, so give a couple of examples of how the technology is solving the problems, like the specific examples. Like when you talked about um, the kids who had um, been abused making the videos. Um, yeah. So what was happening, and in yeah. some places in the U.S. it's still happening, is when a child experiences abuse or there's an allegation of abuse, the first step over the last 20 years has um changed and it's now instead of going to a scary police department and having talk to talk to a grizzled agent and in a you know in a room that is also using to talk to criminals instead there are child advocacy centers and there are a network of about 900 of these mostly nonprofit organizations some exist in prosecutors offices or in conjunction with law enforcement uh, but the problem was is that they're recorded to preserve the evidence for legal proceedings and criminal investigations and also to help the child mitigate PTSD by having to tell their story over and over. But then these DVDs were burned and redistributed over and over again to all of these various members of the multidisciplinary team. And you can imagine with that the kind of issues that can crop up and they had. They were being lost or stolen. They were um, being used inappropriately and judges were having to throw out cases because of mishandling of evidence. There were in some terrible cases, um, these videos ending up on YouTube. One was on its way to the Dr. Phil show. And so it was really a matter of how do we protect this evidence and, and preserve the um, the voices of these children who have already been violated. And so can you imagine as a parent or as a child to have to think about waking up one day and seeing your most, you know, sort of violating truths um, being available on the internet. And so the technology solution we created with Vitanix is a secure digital evidence platform where the video can be uploaded and it is protected with 13 layers of security and then can be shared digitally only to those authorized users and has a whole lot of really cool technology, including the ability to have watermarks and closed captioning because a lot of these children are speaking maybe under a blanket or under a table. It's hard to understand them. And so that was helpful in being able to speed up their ability to, um, to look at the cases when mm. previously these you know, um, agents were having to manually transcripts so a lot oh, of interesting technology innovation and this low-cost tool that they can all use and now they have data and insights and they can archive them in the cloud instead of having filing cabinets in their office taking up space and having DVDs that were really degradating in quality and in some cases costing a lot of money for offsite storage so that's kind of you know one of the exciting ways that technology for the public interest can really be powerful. Today, it's protecting 26,000 kids. That's amazing. In over 120 nonprofit organizations. And uh, it's something we're really proud of. And how do you keep up um, on learning about all the various nonprofits? That's kind of the first part of the question. And the second is, like, given that the values are around equity and social justice, how do you even vet where to put your energy and measure the kind of impact that the technology can have. Are you creating it like 
in real time, like, okay, well, this is a way that we could actually address this, or do they come with their own ideas, and then you see if you can enable those through mm, technology? Yeah, both. I, I think usually nonprofit organizations, a lot of organizations may not necessarily know what the solution is, so we try to focus on having them tell their problems in their own words and um, sort of let us know where you want to get and then let people that really understand the pathways figure out what is that missing piece. And so with X for Impact, our newest platform, we really focus on allowing nonprofit organizations and social sector leaders to just share in their own words what their challenges are without having to feel like they need to write an RFP for a particular tech solution. Yeah. And in that way, they can focus on really what the human impact is, right? In the case of Vita Nix, it's about protecting children. And if we understand what that end goal is, then we can figure out the right path with technology. But often when nonprofits have come to us or we've spoken in different arenas about um, this framework of creating technology in a scaled way, we realize that some of their problems are really just that there's a lack of awareness about mm. existing tech solutions that they could be using to solve their problem, either right. general market solutions that just seemed to, to not be speaking their language, so didn't know that they could be used in that way, or there are niche social tech solutions that have been created just like VitaNix, but because they don't have that big marketing machine and the SEO to be on page one of Google, it's really hard for them to, um, to discover them organically. So what we've done with X for Impact is try to create one central repository of all of these mission-driven social tech solutions. So if you're a homeless shelter looking for a case management tool or you're a food bank looking for some sort of a um, you know, logistics um, efficiency tool, you can go somewhere that's already speaking your language and you can see if there's something that exists. And that's a way to help create scale because you asked how we kind of vetted and one of the real lenses that we look at before we create a tech solution is number one, is, is there something else that already exists? And if the answer is no, then is this a systemic problem which can be addressed with technology at least on a, on a US basis and potentially globally? Because if it's just something that's really specific for one organization, that's really not usually something that a brand new technology right. solution needs to be developed for. It's probably a workflow issue perhaps, or there are consultants that will build a one-off solution. But what we're really looking at is taking the vantage point of, you know, Luis, for example, worked at Microsoft. You build it once, you serve billions. You know, I came yeah. from technology and, and media where you create content once and distribute it to millions. So how can you use those same economies of scale to help address problems? And how do you discover the nonprofits or how do they discover you? Mm. Like, where are you in that part of the journey? Yeah, you know what? Um, I think that sadly, it's about listening. And a lot of times the, the organizations we speak to, they say, I can't believe that you're listening and you're asking these questions. And so right now, the way that it's working is we have developed x4i.org, which is a place where nonprofits can actually put in their challenges. And then technology solutions and ideators and funders can actually take a look at creating that matching and finding that place where funding can support 
real problems where social entrepreneurs can understand a real problem and not just create a solution in search of a problem. And, um, and there's a place where they can also find grant funding and others. So right now we're doing it digitally, particularly with COVID and bringing people to that platform. But previously we were hosting listening sessions in cities around the country and speaking at various conferences and events and really just trying to get people to think bigger and realize that if we can use, you know, handheld devices to connect to food takeout and uh, and all of our holiday Christmas shopping and other matching problems, how can we use these same building blocks to help solve the problems that we have that are of a social aspect, that there are kids needing mentors and their adults willing to be a mentor. They just can't find each other. And that's a matching problem that can be solved through technology. And so that's where really where we're at. We're still on this learning journey, but we would love for people to come to X for I to Yeah, that's to helpful for us to know because the listeners, I mean, everybody wants to help and make change. So the average listener who's not running a nonprofit, but like may want to connect the dots or find out ways that they can help. X for I. Yeah. That's right. Dot, dot org. And dot org. Okay. Yeah. And even, you know, one of the things that we see is an enabler of social impact is to support these technology solutions that are building against these impact areas. A lot of people think about their charitable donations and their giving on the receiving end of an organization, which is fantastic. But there are also really, really interesting tech solutions that are also an enabler to help at scale. And so I would also encourage people to take a look at some of the solutions. We have one, for example, called AutoLung, and um, they create low-cost ventilators for under $200 in less than two hours using a software approach. And um, that's been something with COVID that they've been able to look at helping underserved communities all around the world that maybe don't have the same kind of high-power infrastructure to bring in all the expensive medical grade ventilators. And so they're really inspiring stories there that you can see that um, if we can look at the solutions, I also think it's really inspiring to focus on solutions because um, that's where you see, I think the connection to your dollars and really seeing the data that it's having an impact. Yeah. And so you said you've done seven. Um, I would love to hear about any others that you want to share, but also like, what do you envision for the next one, three, five years? Mm, yeah, we've been doing a lot of work in our labs with um, insights around voice technology that can connect humans in a deeper way that is removing some of the privacy barriers that have been so pervasive. We're also doing a lot of work around creating knowledge graphs, which is a really interesting uh, body of work around domain-specific trusted sources, sort of a new paradigm for search, custom search engines that are built from the ground up just with those sources that you know uh, can be relied upon on that very specific issue area. So we just did a research project around economic mobility for older Americans and looking at using these tools and how AI can help advance our learning and create deep insights. So we're going to continue that body of work around data-driven insights around specific social issues Mm. and trying to connect those pieces and helping organizations have a better understanding by using this kind of semi-automated approach with AI and humans working together. 
And on the voice technology side, we're really excited because we've had some big breakthroughs in connecting insights around different types of emotion that can be sort of communicated, not by what you're saying, but how you're saying. And so we've built a lot of tools to look at the analysis of the fundamental frequencies of your voice, which in this world where we're all doing video conferences is even more important because you don't have the same tools you would in a, in a room, but uh, it's really exciting because instead of having to have voice to text transcription and having that private information stored somewhere, yeah. there's actually no recording and we're able to give real-time feedback about your speaking rate and your engagement, whether you're high energy or low energy and being able to also transition to looking at different age groups and demographics. We just wow. did a study around whether or not older Americans are perhaps perceived differently because of the voice. And we actually saw that there were scientific connections that yes, your voice does change and that there are some biomarkers. And we're also doing some work to look at um, some of the mental health aspects, whether you can detect sadness mm-hmm. and other levels of emotions just through someone's voice. And so that can wow. really help if you think about crisis lines or having hard conversations with family members or uh, even early childhood education. You think about these educators and their ability to connect with kids or even special needs, autistic children and families and how they could maybe get biofeedback in different ways with colors or other nudges as opposed to judgment about you know, someone saying, you sound too aggressive, but if there was an ability through technology tool uh, to be able to utilize some of those elements, we're really excited about those opportunities. These are such powerful things you're building. I mean, you must just go to bed exhausted at night, like the emotional, um, just the emotional uh, impact of what you're doing. I, I can't imagine doing this day in and day out. Are you able to I mean, I guess being an entrepreneur, being a mom, being in a pandemic, like how are you able to compartmentalize all of this? Uh, yeah, we uh, we kind of use a little bit of everything. I mean, I think humor is a big system that we all need to sort of continually maintain. Uh, I have a really strong group of girlfriends. I think you've talked in some of your other podcasts about the power of, you know, having that village. And for me, I have, I have my wolf pack, we call it, and, uh, and really strong friendships that get me through because it is sometimes complicated to try to step away when you're really trying to solve hard problems. It's hard in any business environment, but particularly when you're talking about, for example, child sexual abuse. Yeah, or, you can't. I mean, how do you step yeah, away? Yeah, these really emotionally charged topics about um, you know inequality and poverty and other issues that can be you know, heavy. And so I think the ability to find, uh, find that outlet um, is really helpful. And then, you know, just personally, just having the, the ability to see your children, it kind of uh, puts everything in perspective. And the fact that we've all gotten to have lots of quality time this year. Yeah, you're all caught uh, up really, with them. <laughs> yeah, I, but I do appreciate that because before yeah. I was running around and gone a lot and working long hours in the office. And so it was, yeah 
harder for me to find that balance, but now I think it's really helpful for us. That part, that part is a gift as a working mom. It's absolutely yeah. true. I mean, you're hearing like dogs barking and kids, kids are walking around in my background, but I love it that there's, my kids are seeing me like do a podcast. Like they, they didn't ever have access to kind of how does mom spend her day yeah, um, in right. and out of I work. I think you have a new appreciation too, that we work hard. We don't get to just sort yeah. of have, have coffee with grownups. I think that was maybe their assumption before, but now they see probably, it. Probably, probably, yeah. And so what about just kind of like self-care and relaxing and taking care of your own mental health? How have you approached that? Yeah, I was always someone who uh, wanted to do all of those things, but had a hard time channeling it into something specific. But I started going to yoga retreats about Five years ago, my husband got me a gift one year, and it was something I didn't even know I needed. And for me, it was this power-packed four days of supercharged self-care that I could justify without feeling guilty of not being at work or not being with the kids and stepping away from life's challenges to go work out or take that time. So that was a really beautiful opportunity for me to start my practice of at least once a year taking that time. And I was lucky enough this year, right before the shutdown, I got my uh, got my retreat in. And so hopefully I'll be able to return to that. But I do Pilates and uh, try to do some meditation. I started maybe a year and a half ago, every morning when I wake up, just having a gratitude meditation. And that sounds very sort of, you know, uh, I guess woo woo, but for me it really helps because yeah. I was previously immediately grabbing the phone and then I was going into work mode, just looking at all of the emails. Yeah, is your gratitude uh, meditation something that you do on your own, or is it through an app? Or you no, know, I just do it on my own. I just wake up and I just sort of, you That's know, talk, talk to myself what I'm grateful for. You know, thank you for the mountains and the water or the view. Oh, that's or great. Those things that just remind you and kind of ground you that no matter mm-hmm. how chaotic the day is, and it's just something that you can feel positive about as opposed to, oh, I have this meeting or I have yeah. this deadline I need to work on or the kids need me to do this. So that's that's been something that's been helpful. Yeah, and it's super grounding. Yeah, reading too for me has been helpful, getting out of my own head. And yeah. uh, What are you reading these days? I am reading two things. One is a book that was recommended by someone in this field. It's an old book. It's maybe 15 years old, but it's called uh, The World is Flat. Mm. And it's sort of the beginning of the proliferation of technology and bringing really our world together where you can have a call center in India or you can have developers in, uh, in China speaking to product managers in Seattle or just the way that technology has connected us all. And it's really interesting almost to have this perspective of time to see that the evolution of how ideation around um, you know, networking and the entrepreneurial spirit um, that brought us to this place has really gone so far to connect us and that you can be halfway around the world and be yeah. doing this, right? On yeah. video. Call. I mean, think about how different we would have handled this pandemic if we didn't have. Oh these gosh, I can't even imagine. And what's the second book? Oh, the other one is because I'm raising a, an 11-year-old daughter, and so I need all the help I can get. So it's called Untangling. I, I expect so. You're listening to Untangling, yeah. Yes, yes. So I'm. Or is it Untangled? Untangled, Untangled maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's supposed to be incredible, and I have it. I just haven't read it. But yeah, it's okay. been recommended by so many people, and it's supposed to be 
incredible. So maybe you just read it and give me your cliff notes. Okay. Yeah. I'm early in, but yeah, I'll, I'll give you some tips. I, I could use all the help I can get. I don't have to look up parenting. And what are you most looking forward to? I know that there's some incredible um, gifts that this time has given us, but um, what are you most looking forward to besides the hugs after COVID? Oh gosh, everything. Travel. I, you can see behind me. I don't know those of you that see video, the world map. My husband and I took a trip around the world in 2008. We did 13 countries. Wait, how did I miss this? This yeah, is like the whole podcast. That's the second podcast. What? Okay, yeah. How to do a sabbatical. Yes. Yeah, so we took three and a half months off as a sabbatical, 100 days. We left on New Year's Day and we flew to Peru. And from there, went to Argentina and Uruguay and France and Italy and went down into Africa oh and African safari and went to the pyramids <gasps> in Egypt and down the Nile. That's my dream. Is that with your kids? No, this was pre-kids. Oh, pre-kids, so, yeah. Yeah, so travel <sighs> has been something that is just, um, it, you know, it's this is the longest I've gone without being on an airplane. So I yeah. think once travel is back, just to see the world and explore and show our kids the world would be really oh, exciting. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait. It's almost like biting into like, a great slice of pizza or something. You just want it. Like I just crave it. I totally get it. So my ultimate question for you, and I'm sure I get it, but I'm curious what fuels you? What fuels me? Well, I have always said human connections fuel me. And so this has been a challenge as someone who is an extrovert gets her energy from other people. Uh, I really want to help and I want to try to leave the world or, or the conversation or the person a little bit better than hopefully I found them. So I think that that's just my quest to sort of get to the root of, you know, what connects us. And so I think finding those connection points is really powerful. And I love when you don't think that there's going to be anything in common with someone and you find that connection point. And yeah. so I think for me, if I can try to use my voice and my lens to be able to be a voice for these, you know, nonprofit leaders and social sector um, practitioners that are working so hard to solve these great problems. If I can in any way amplify um, their voice, that, that fuels me. And on the other side for social entrepreneurs, if I can help them with any of the learnings that we've had doing it the hard way and help connect these resources, because I really do feel like there needs to be this sort of role in the middle, um, you know, sort of that matchmaker. And so if I can be in this place where I can help, you know, see the needs and the problems and help connect the funders to the opportunity to make an impact, those who are, you know, really doing the hard work and be able to amplify and scale their impact through digital tools, those are the things that really excite me. It's, um, it's not about um, having any sort of legacy. I don't care about that. I don't care if anyone knows my name or giving tech labs, but I get really excited about connecting people. The actual doing of it. And you are doing it. It's so exciting. I'm Thank so you. honored to have you on the podcast. Like This is Thank awesome. You. And I can't wait to watch you continue to build this and Thank thrive. You. It's awesome. Oh, good. Well, I, I hope that there's going to be a renaissance where people start realizing that you can do good and do well. And we, you know, have this feeling that you need to go to work and then later in life, figure out what you're passionate about and go do that. So I hope that this helps people realize that you can put your money where your mouth is. You can work in organizations that are aligned with your mission. You can do something about it. And, uh, and we would just invite people to join us and come on this little train called technology for 
the public interest. There's plenty of room, plenty of seats for everyone. Ah, thank you. So good to see you. Sending um, big hugs. Can't wait to see you in person. Thanks, Shauna. Take care. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.